0: Only from Rustolium.
1: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Oi, oi, here we are. Hello, it's Bruce Daisley. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about work culture. If you've got a job, if you're the boss, if you're the worker, if you're the cleaner... I want to help you make it get better. And each week we'll be sort of trying to add to our some total of knowledge of how to do that. I did an event this week, a um, fabulous sold-out event called Culture 2.0. I did that with Sue Todd. And possibly there'll be some of the audio from that coming up over the next weeks. I say possibly because the guy running the sound desk, Alan, uh, I gave him a memory stick to record it, and the file he's given me back looks empty. So I've sent it to Alan... I FedExed it to Alan, uh, £7 that cost me. And he's going to take a look and see if you can find that. Hashtag pray for Alan. Let's let's see if we can get some of that back. But some of that event was absolutely fabulous. And even if I have lost that file, then somehow or other, other, I'm going to speak to some of the guests and... On that subject, today's guest, Dan Cable, was probably the star of the show. So uh, you're going to get some of the, the, the magic that he brought to the event here today. Actually planning another event, so I'm planning an event, a really low-cost live episode of Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat in January. So, so look out for more details of that coming up soon. You can find all of the episodes with transcripts on the website. You can add me on LinkedIn if you want to give me your thoughts. And you can also follow the show on Twitter. Right, so today's episode, like I say, is with Dan Cable. And there's two things that I think you're going to be able to use immediately in your job. Two specific things that you can adapt in. And I know people have been saying, look, we're looking for specific actions. I think now we're starting to get into the areas where there's there's very clear indications of what we can do to improve work. If you miss them, I'll call them out for you at the end of the episode. And I've also highlighted them on the website think you're going to see these these really clear science to the examples that he's giving. So context for today's episode, Dan Cable is a professor of organisational behaviour at London Business School. I saw him give a breathtakingly brilliant talk uh, a few months ago and went to introduce myself. I then went down to interview him one evening at the Regent's Park campus of London Business School. Underpinning a lot of Dan's work is the idea of Bringing your full self to work. And I suspect that's one of the sort of the phrases that's very easy for a lot of Luddites to to dismiss. If you're not into the idea of work culture, then bringing yourself to work must be, seem like one of the ridiculous, overly emotional notions that you occasionally hear. But the benefit of Dan's work is it's all underpinned by science. And there's, there's a whole load of research that's gone into it. In fact, the reason why I think the idea of bringing your full self to work is relevant is if you look at some of the stats that are already out there, there's there's a great resource which is the the Gallup Workforce Survey and they've got it all on the Gallup website. One of the stats that really stands out there, 8% of British workers feel engaged at work. Clearly that's really relevant because if 8% of all British workers feel engaged at work and that's about a quarter of the level in the US, then it means... To some extent, there's probably someone in your work that is unengaged. And and I guess the law of averages are probably sort of nine out of ten of people in your work are unengaged. So it's something that's, I think, very relevant. How can you bring people's full self to work so they can feel more engaged? The same Gallup survey says 78% of people go to work to shut off, basically to not be themselves. So, based on that, if you can make people feel like they aren't pretending at work, you can make them feel more engaged, then potentially you can get more out of them, that work can feel better for them. Dan, he's stylish, sort of brilliant, effervescent, passionate, full of energy. He's one of those sort of radiating people whose motivation is to make work better. I have to say, it's pretty rare in business school. People they're they're always brilliant, they're learned, intelligent, but they're often consumed with the idea of strategy. And my feeling is that strategy is so linked in to sort of ideas of leadership and the leader being the person who determines success, sometimes they're not really usable for most of us. Dan is interested in strategy and by strategy, you know, the, the decisions that companies make, but he's also interested in people. I think that's really critical to understand his work. When you start with empathy, you often end up with a different result. Dan even observes that his work is involved in neuroscience at times, as much as sort of management and economics, is slightly heretical to what a lot of business school teaching normally says. Two things are gonna help land the interview better. And one of the things we discuss is forced ranking. Now, you might not be familiar with this. This is something very common in US businesses where every employee is given a score, and that's sometimes annually, sometimes quarterly, you know, sometimes six months. But every person is scored and then ranked. So they're put into sort of a league table. Typically, it has to meet what's called a bell curve distribution, meaning that It's obviously a lot of average people, so like the middle of the distribution is really big and fat, like the top of a bell. And there's not many people around the edges, like the side of a bell, really. So there's very small people in the top 5%, very small people in the bottom 5%. And effectively, when you do a forced ranking, quite often the firms that do that choose to fire the bottom 5 or 10% of their workers. So we talk about forced ranking. It's definitely something worth debating in most firms. Any firm that uses it tends to find it's heavily gamified and heavily sort of politicised by the people who work there. Another thing we talk about is the fear system and the seeking system. There are two parts of the work by a guy called Jak Pansep, who was a a neuroscientist at Washington State University. Jak Pansep passed away this year, actually, but his life work was studying the mammal brain specifically via rats if you want to see yak uh, tickling rats demonstrating that rats giggle it's uh, it's quite a sort of compelling piece of video footage but i've put one of yak's presentations online i've sort of become obsessed with the guy and uh, if you're interested in that you can find that on the episode page on Eat FM. one of the most powerful parts of the discussion we talk about purpose a lot of companies talk about purpose dan gives real hard evidence about purpose you know, the sort of the, the idea, why are we doing this? What, what's the, the objective? What's the greater mission that we're doing here? He basically explains that how pur- purpose works and then doesn't work. And, and the spoiler, I guess, on that one is it's based on the actions that bosses do. As Dan basically says, purpose isn't what your boss tells you what it is. Purpose is what you decide it is. I think that's really critical. he will understand that when he goes through it i'm gonna throw over to Dan. A lot of the discussion today is a precursor to Dan's incredible forthcoming book which is called Alive at Work and it's definitely worth getting yourself a pre order of that because genuinely having read a vast amount of literature in the last twelve months, it's by far the most enlightened and most powerful work on the way that our offices and our work cultures exist today. I've been fortunate enough to read it twice in the and it's truly a remarkable work. Without further ado, here's Dan. So so Dan, a a lot of your discussion seems to be about the intersection of work and emotion and you talk about great companies creating a feeling where where workers strive to achieve more at work, to, to accomplish more. How do companies do this and what's the impact? Yeah. Okay, so
2: in terms of the impact, what I really like thinking about here is what do people bring to work? And so I think that if we very quickly talk about lots of people just show up, you could say they bring their hands. Other people are thinking about how to do old things in new ways. They're trying to be innovative or creative, bring their head to work. And then the hardest might be to get people to bring their heart to work so that it's not just a profession, something they do because they're knowledgeable and expert, but that it's also something that they love or that they want to put themselves into, that they care about. And so that idea about leaders creating an organization where on average people are bringing all of themselves to work i think that's really interesting Um, and we can talk more about the ways that leaders seem to achieve that but your second and maybe even the point of your question is what gets created and so if we think from an organizational perspective if employees are showing up and bringing their hands in they're sort of listening and waiting for a script And that puts enormous influence on what the leaders have to think up. It means that the leaders have to come up with the game plan again and again and again. Each time the organization needs to change, the onus is on leaders to first sort it all out and then teach people. I think that when people are starting to bring their brains to work and want to innovate and try new things, it starts to mean that creativity and innovation are organic and emergent rather than people sort of waiting for the answer and then judging it. So one of the most important things from bringing your head to work would be um, innovation and creativity that the leaders get to experience and watch, but not dream up and teach. And then in terms of um, bringing heart to work, emotions, I think there's two really important bits here. One is um, so many organizations are trying to create emotional connections with the client, with the customer. And that's really difficult to do if the employees themselves are not feeling it. So to plug emotions into a conversation or a sales call, to think hard about creating a relationship and not just a pitch, that often demands emotional labor. That demands employees bring their emotions to work and care if they're to be seen as authentic. That's one thing second thing that we've really learned a lot about lately is, in order to try new things at work, there has to be some emotion that people are willing to put themselves out there and take risks. They're willing to be energized enough to try something that might not work. And a lot of times, that is not something they're willing to do unless they're feeling that it's important.
1: And tell me this then, so like, you know, it's, there's a couple of things I wanted to, to call out there. So one of the things when I saw you talking was a Gallup survey you, you gave reference to, which was 78% of people say that they are an adapted version of themselves. Or, or uh, The wording was they go to work to shut off, which is a depressing set of words, isn't it? And so that links into what you said there, people bringing their full emotional self to, to work. I was chatting to someone about your work and they said but any firm that's fired someone the risk of exposing your vulnerabilities the risk of exposing your true yes, self leaves, leaves you right. exposed that's to right. Right. works exploitation
2: and how do you reconcile those oh it's such a good topic in terms of the statistics it's funny after we did that and i've got your note here i went and looked and where i originally got that 78% it's actually 80% The Gallup Institute looked at 1.7 million employees, 63 countries, and 101 companies, and they found that 80% of the people said that they could not be their best at work. It's a very strong um, finding. It means that on average, work is a place where people feel they have to hide bits of themselves that they think are actually their best bits. And that means that they're wearing a sort of a mask And you've really put your finger on the issue, which is, for a lot of people, in order to be my best at work, I would have to do it differently than you told me to do it. And this takes me to the idea, through not really evil, but through efficiency, the Industrial Revolution was about standardization and making jobs not only simple, but very... Replicable, meaning that if I lose you in this job, I can easily hire and find somebody else. Cog in a machine, thinking. <laughs> this new approach is to say, we have to let people personalize work. We would have to let them take the job, then bring their unique strengths to it. To light it up, as it were, using the way that they could do it best. And that, I think, is where your your exact comment is. It, it's It's catching me, because... If we keep an industrial, uh, <laughs> sort of a mechanized model of what humans do, there's not really room for individuality. And playing to your strengths means that you're going to do it differently than me. That might mean that I got to judge you differently than you judge me. It might mean the metrics for you might be the metrics that are different for me. So now when I start hearing about the likes of... Accenture, or Deloitte, or I just learned today, Amazon, moving away from these forced ranking systems. One of the reasons why they're saying they're doing that is to allow more personalization of how people do their work, allowing more job crafting and playing to strengths. So maybe we're even seeing the beginning of some trends, but those trends are, I think, seriously questioning this standardization model that sort
1: of came out of the 1900s. The bit I get from reading your work, and, and so you, you talk a lot about seeking systems, which might be uh, worth you explaining, but the bit I get about your work, then if I overlay what you said there, is that that um, notion of not bringing your full self to work is something that you could probably accommodate in a clerical routine job, but not bringing your full self to work is something that is very difficult to accommodate in a world where creativity, ideas, and invention uh uh, the the core principles that you've got and as work migrates away from these jobs that the robots are coming after into things that are far more unique and creatively focused this seems to be a critical thing that all work needs to get ready for then right
2: what you just put your finger on is why now why are these positive emotions at work so important now why haven't we caught on to this in the 40s the 50s the 60s and there's something really interesting about pace and speed of change not very long ago 1987 for me i came out with an undergraduate degree by 1995 i had a phd and through that whole time the way people talked and thought about organizational change is that the leaders thought that up and then cascaded it throughout that you created a burning platform and then tried to get people to accept the change even though they would resist And this new approach of saying, we don't have two years to create a change. We can't do an 18-month rollout. In 18 months, the world's going to have changed two more times. It puts a very strong demand on getting these volunteer changes to emerge organically. And I think that this is enormously hopeful. Humanistically, it's very hopeful to me because it implies strongly that organizations that are using fear and then teaching scripts won't be adept. They won't adapt. They won't be seen as relevant. And organizations that invite people to bring their whole selves to work, that invest in their best selves, will not only survive, will be more likely to thrive. And so for me... Why now is enormously hopeful, and I think that it won't be all leaders that accept that approach. I personally had a hard time with this, even as an American. In, In what sense? It's not the way I was taught. It's not the way my teeth were cut. It's not the assumption base in which I operated. And for somebody that's always been taught smart objectives, goal setting around the organizational goals, cascading objectives starting from the top, 18 to 24 month rollouts, it is somewhat, it was somewhat, I'm (laughs) fully on board now, but it was somewhat interesting how much I had to get my head around this new approach that the leader doesn't have to have all the answers. They have to engage people to want to find the answers you have to give up quite a bit of your certainty
1: and become considerably more vulnerable Could you talk through then the fear system and the the seeking system because it underpins a lot of the insight that I think you've shared Sure, sure. The fear system's a good place to start because I think everybody knows about that one.
2: There is a part of our brain dedicated to injecting cortisol into us when we experience a shock that is threatening and so The feeling that people report, that sort of jumpy, anxious, uh, fearful state comes along with not only some drugs that get jetted into our bloodstreams, but also some tendencies of how we should respond. Uh, And we don't get to control those tendencies. (laughs) They were helpful to our ancestors, so we got them now. So the eyes dilate to let in more information. We flinch and pull back. Our body wraps our muscles tighter as we get ready to either fight or flee. And so we don't get control over that. That's an unconscious reaction to fear. And when organizations create that, that means that the fear is coming from within the group. And the action that our body wants to take when that fear hits from within the group, the threat comes from those around us, uh, what we want to do is conform. We want to fit in. We want to hide our uniqueness. So, unfortunately, that used to be good for Henry Ford. <laughs> that's not so good for organizations that want people to be innovative and creative. So now let's flip it. Um, fortunately, for all of time, we have a different part of our brain that uses a different drug. Uh, it's not as strong as the, as the uh, fear system, and that's something that's really powerful. Fear has to be quicker. Seeking system takes longer. But the seeking system uses Dopamine. And what it's interested in doing is causing us to explore and play. So when we're not afraid, there's something in us that urges us to think about new ways to get resources. Our ancestors needed to gather resources even when they had a cave and food. They were seeking, thinking about other ways to get resources. They were pushing us out of Africa onto other continents to try to see what's out there. And that's existed for all of time. So that part of us is deeply resonant, but as long as we're feeling fear, we don't give it a chance to emerge. So the part of me that is so hopeful is that the current system of how do we activate playful behavior at work, how do we activate creativity and innovation of new ways to do old things, demands the dopamine, the enthusiasm. It demands that curiosity. But leaders don't always have the right practices to activate. And that's when I say I'm hopeful. That's why I'm hopeful. It's putting the onus now on leaders
1: to say, how do I get that state? How do I reduce fear and increase curiosity? The one thing I found especially interesting, but you talked about the fear system. There, there was this example of rats in a cage. And if a bit of cat fur was put into the, the rats. So rats, you taught me, are immensely playful animals. They love playing. But as soon as a bit of cat fur is in their cage, they, they go into this, this fear state. that Actually, they find it pretty impossible to emerge from. It, it sort of permeates their behaviour, even when time passes and for me there's an interesting parallel there because a lot of us or a lot of organizations do flit into fear mode they they do they do say now's now's code red now's the time that you guys need to be focusing on this and that for me is something that a business might enter into lightly but the consequence might be these enduring abiding memories in people's heads and I wonder how you can think about that it's
2: fabulous the analogy as you were talking that I got was my back and how when it gets a little bit threatened let's say by too much tennis serving it seizes up it literally clasps my spinal cord so hard that I fall and crumple and it's trying to protect me it thinks it's doing the right thing for me and This is what I think will happen in a lot of organizations. They're fine to do a bit of play, as long as there's plenty of resources, that there's slack in the environment, as long as we're just proactively fooling around. But when the industry has shifted and we need to catch up, or when the profits slip a little bit, if all of a sudden that little R&D doesn't pay off immediately, How do we react and what tightens up? It's clear that there's no more important time to have creativity in play is when we need to change. But unfortunately, when we need to change might make organizations spasm and go strictly into fear state. Now, let me tell you this, that will work as long as the people already know the right behaviors. Again, it'll focus them on the threat And it'll make them conform to the rules of what we should be doing. That's great if you have the right rules. Unfortunately, what organizational change often means is we don't know. We need to figure it out. We need to be curious. We need to be creative. So right there is the rub. There's no more important time to stimulate the dopamine in the seeking system than when we don't know the right answer. So that's fascinating. Mm. That's really... It's 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 a paradox that I think will put a lot of businesses out of business.
1: Yeah, because you if you play through that scenario, that time when you're really underperforming, in trouble, people are scrutinising you. You know, lapse in the fear. hostile shareholder position. Yeah. At that time, you're saying to people, now's the time to start experimenting, having ideas. It's over to you. It's sort of this servant leadership. It's over to you. Yeah, it's a a really nice
2: illustration right there. And because I had one of these seize-up opportunities recently, you just find it so interesting how the body thinks it's doing it to help you. And in this case, it simply is not helpful. One other thing I'll put out there that I find interesting, the fear state wasn't meant to be switched on all the time you know our ancestors wouldn't have lived in constant fear there would have been the occasional bear or threat but the idea that in many organizations day in and day out week in and week out month in and month out it's a cesspool of fear it's it's roiling with anxiety that's where the burnout happens Mm. Okay. And, it's not and the quick reaction that's run. It's the, let me enter it into another 9, 10, 12 hours of fear today so that I can do it again tomorrow.
1: God, my life.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Have I depressed us enough?
1: <laughs> let's, let's talk about purpose because one of the things that, look, I mean, more and more businesses now... Are trying to reach for purpose because I think I think because they can see in certain instances it seems to be this incredibly energizing corporate behavior you've done a lot of work on this trying to find out when purpose works and when purpose doesn't work and it's an interesting thing isn't it purpose it, purpose is a, a bit like humor in the sense that a very small difference a very small nuance can turn it from being That's nice sincere very nice. to being really horrible and saccharine and these examples that I think you've got where people have found purpose inauthentic and what was I was particularly interested in is you seem to have come across the way that you can make purpose connect. I sure hope so
2: I think one of the most interesting case studies with some really solid data, is Adam Grant did a study where he took fundraisers who were just making calls for money. They were making calls for a university. And in one set of the fundraisers, he did an experiment where he simply brought in one of the recipients of that money, a scholarship student, and they sat down with them and basically said thank you. Said thank you for doing what you do. I couldn't afford school without you. And he found enormous increases in terms of how many calls and how much money. You know, threefold kind of responses.
1: And it was a really brief interaction, with Oh it? my gosh, it was, it was yeah, minutes. ten minutes. Yeah. It's an incredible
2: thing. So then, you know, one of the supervisors said, but you know, that's kind of my job. It's what I do. We don't really need to bring in the scholarship students. so they re-ran a study, a whole different set of call centers, a whole different set of you know, fundraisers. Where in this one, they again did the student one. The student came in and said, thank you. But in another one, the boss came in and said the same thing, mind you. He said, thank you, and let's remember why we're doing this. It's to put kids in school. It just didn't work as well. It got you know, 6% increase, not even statistically significant, whereas they replicated the first result, you know, over three times um, more calls, almost six times more money. And this really got me thinking. It it really helped me to start understanding that purpose isn't about what the boss says it is. That somehow that could even create a bit of cynicism. Because maybe people feel a little exploited. Maybe purpose is the last frontier. It's something that's truly personal. And you don't get to tell me my purpose. And I find it really interesting to think about Personalizing purpose, mm. not by the leader saying, Here's what it is, you've got to internalize it, and certainly not by a firm putting it on the website or creating a laminated card that you have to wear around your neck. You know, almost certainly that won't be received in somebody's heart as my purpose. Mm. But interesting how, if a leader would start with the goal of how can I invest in them personalizing purpose? How can I get them closer to the end user of what they do all day long? And in study after study and in example after example, that's what I'm seeing working. I'm seeing that when you can look or talk to the person that is using the product and have them say, thank you. Here's why it's so good when you do what you do well. Here's why it hurts when you don't do it well. That's... Emotional and not cognitive. That's gratitude, is an emotion that we have felt and have been evolved to feel. And when you feel gratitude, it makes you want to give back. It creates a more honest exchange. It creates trust. It's just very interesting to me how the switch can be thrown, but maybe not in such a mercenary way. Hmm. And I have a feeling that when leaders hear that employees want to know about purpose, they think their job is to cook it up for them. And I believe what we're stumbling on is it takes a bit more of an investment than that. It it, It takes creating a personalized experience where firsthand they witness the end user experiencing their product. Yeah. So there's something about that that's hopeful to me as well. I Again, I might just be the eternal optimist, and that's okay too. But what inspires hope in me is how that's more how we're built.
1: Yeah, and, and just for, fascinating for me, it feels a bit like, and this might feel like I've, I've turned this into a lower level of academia. No, no. But it feels like when you... You must be familiar with Robert Cialdini's influence and, like, sure. and those those behavioral triggers and... You know the the things he studies at great length about the bath towels, the the reuse of bath towels, and and sometimes semantics can play a big part, words and wording. And yours seem your work there seems really similar in the sense that you're learning you, by understanding the cognitive paths that work in people's minds. You're finding a better way to connect with them in things that are you know are heartfelt and meaningful. Yeah,
2: that's just um, wow. There's a lot that you said there. Number one, it's that this, the triggers are subtle. If you didn't know to look for these differences, you might not even see that they're there. It could even be that one of the leaders listening to this, if he or she just glanced away for a moment and their mind just didn't hear the bit about personalizing, yeah, 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 I know purpose is important. I got that. That's why we have it on the website. You know, that's, that's why we tell every new applicant about it. You know, that, It's quite subtle what we're saying here. It's it's, let's find a way to feel it firsthand. That's interesting to me.
3: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
3: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
1: So, so the other thing I wanted to cover was uh, we, we talked a little bit at the start about the whole self and, the, and I, I guess, you know, and it, it's, it was really interesting But I saw that in your work because I've always thought if you can bring your unadapted self to work and it, you can be the same person in every context, that seems to be a route to happiness and so consequently mm-hmm. if, if work can facilitate that then happiness at work, which is sort of my obsession, can be more easily accomplished. And through your work, you found really simple, I think these days people would style them as hacks, for companies to encourage people to bring them, their real selves to work. And it's very much it's simple things uh, about the onboarding process, about people starting work. Do you want to just sort of talk through the things that you sure. found there?
2: Sure. Uh, I think there's three things I'd like to say. Um, The first one, uh, and you know, you could call it a hack, um, that can come off as pejorative, but if you just think of it as a way forward, a little bit unexpected way forward, I think it kind of works, actually. But one um, study that we did with Wipro in India was they were hiring newcomers, and we just, for one group, randomly assigned them to a condition where the very first hour, the very first day, Uh, A leader said, rather than start with a job, we want to start with you. We want you to write down three times that you've been your very best. One of you had your best impact on other people. And essentially, it was a way of getting them to create a a sort of um, a highlights reel. A personal highlights reel. Not that you always act this well. Not that you always have this impact. But sometimes... You just up your game for whatever reason. We want you to write about that. Gave them 20 minutes. And then they went off and they introduced their best selves to each other. They'd never met before. So in this fairly uncertain new environment of a brand new job, meeting these people they'd never met before, they were just asked to introduce your best self and maybe read one of those stories. And we found that six months later, they were 57% less likely to quit, and they were making customers 11% happier, statistically significant. We were really surprised by that because we didn't spend any money. And it's just, there's a lot that it could be doing. So we went back to Harvard and we replicated that with a bunch of data entry people in Boston. And we found that not only did it work again, they made fewer errors, more likely to come back to work and so on. But we also measured why. And the strongest reason why is they felt that other people at work knew who they really were. They felt that they could self-express that people knew their real strengths. It that, that carried the variance, as it were. So that's one. Second thing that I bring up is we have now worked with a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different studies where we put that on steroids by going out to people's social networks. So we'll go out to a person's parents, um, siblings, college buddies, high school buddies, um, old bosses, old professors. uh, And we have those people be a looking glass back and say, here's where we saw that person at their best. They write stories saying, here's where that person had their biggest influence on me. And we bundle those and we give them to them. And um, it really seems to affect people. It seems to make that best self more salient It seems to ignite the seeking system. It releases the dopamine, it makes people more creative, it makes them more innovative, it makes them more resilient to stress and strain, it makes them less likely to burn out. It's an interesting and powerful, if you will, hack. And again, it doesn't really cost much money. It's just we don't do it in the world until people die, and then we call that a eulogy. And it's a really strong, interesting hack, if you will, to give people eulogy when they're still alive and say, hey, why don't you use that here? If those are strengths that are natural and innate to you, and it's you at your best, you probably want to be that more often, don't you? Here's the job that could be a platform for you to be your best. That's much less of a hack and more of a revolution, of course.
1: I was was really struck because that has resonance in there's a book about the Method cleaning company called, called the Method Method and they have mm. something which is one of their core values which is keep Method weird and it's all about celebrating eccentricities mm. it's about celebrating the things that aren't particularly normal yes. and it re- immediately yes. connected and so this place wow. which has been celebrated for a great culture wow. it immediately connected Zappos.com mm. let's keep it a little weird around here
2: Southwest air we want you to bring all of yourself to work even the weird bits. So one of my books is called change to strange, and I'm a big fan of strange Feels to me the last thing we'd want to be is normal, which sounds a lot like average And if you want to be extraordinary if you want to bring something that makes people say wow uh, It's got to be abnormal. It's got to be strange. It can't just fit in so I actually think that we're probably on to something Not only interesting but truthful here Great organizations probably don't race to the middle. They probably race to eccentricity, if you will. So that's a nice catch. Mm -hmm. Even as I'm walking you through this and I'm talking myself through this, I find there to be more mystery here than answers. Why is purpose so powerful? Mm -hmm. How do we trigger purpose that's authentic? These are big questions. (laughs) These are humanistic questions. They're not one where there's the sort of tick box.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the interesting challenge is, can you scale purpose mm-hmm. based on what you said there? Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. all very well that when you've got 20 people in a garage doing something and you can feel connected to what you're doing. But can you scale it to mm-hmm. 10,000 people globally? Yeah. That's it. In, in an authentic Fabulous. way?
2: Fabulous. So if we had to name this book, I think we could name it Beta Testing the Super Firm. It feels very much to me like around the 1890s, we invented this new thing, which is not six people making shoes in a little village shop, but 64,000 called Nike. And how is it that we can, as leaders, make it feel as salient and tangible what we're giving to people and who we're affecting, when most of the people who work there have tiny jobs that they didn't really invent. They, they might order the mesh for the running shoe line, that they didn't design the shoe, they don't talk to the customers who wear the shoe, they don't pick the color of the mesh, they're just trying to get the lowest price. Or maybe they, they post the pictures online for the new shoes, but they don't take the pictures, and they don't decide what the lines of shoes are going to be, they just post them. And to think about bringing a sense of purpose to that is, um. We're beta testing that concept, and I think we have a lot of evidence that it doesn't often work, but then in some firms, there's hints and suggestions that you can get legions of volunteers to say, oh, I want to be working on that. So that's what we're up against. We're trying to crack
1: that code. What an incredible discussion with Dan. So I said I'd call out the two big things that he mentioned. And I guess the the first one that really stood out for me is the idea that if you've got purpose at work, you need to get bosses to, to take a step back purpose needs to feel personal and and like it's it's been discovered by individuals so if you remember there was that exercise where the boss came and explained what the purpose of of the charity donations the fundraising was then they had someone come in and actually describe it firsthand so think about that think about how you could get your sense of mission your sense of purpose your sense of sort of greater meaning how could you get that hammered home so it feels authentic and connected to people and the second one was the the second finding that i think any business can change is the way that inductions work Again, this is really called out in Dan's book, Alive at Work, which is forthcoming uh, next spring. But he really talks about how inductions are the most important place to make people feel like their real self is welcomed in a job. The the work that Dan did was actually done at a sort of a call centre called WePro. The results were so remarkable. And I think, you know, I, I read through the, the, the paper for that piece of work this week. And I don't think they even anticipated that a... A one hour, a 20 minute intervention in people's inductions would have such an incredible impact. But it just goes to show when we allow people to bring themselves to work, it genuinely has an impact not only on the work they do, but on the, the people that they deal with through work. So I hope you've enjoyed today. I I think the interview with with Dan was was absolutely remarkable. If you're listening on the glorious new Apple Podcasts app, I know you are, 75% of all podcast listening happens there. If you are, you can slide down to see more episodes. Give me a star rating. I mean, I've literally rated it five stars ten times. It doesn't seem to change it. I might try again now. Why can't it be five stars? I know it's not five stars. I mean, it's not five out of five, but why can't it say it's five stars? Don't know. Anyway. Feel free to link in to me. Always love to hear people's comments. And you can follow me on Twitter if you search for Eat, Sleep, Work Repeat. See you next week.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen